All right, we'll take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to get into the Ten Commandments tonight. Last week was more of an introduction, uh, just talking about the, the Ten Commandments in general and really the law in general and how we as Christians are to understand and apply the law to our lives today. But uh, tonight we're going to dive in here to this text, Exodus chapter 20, and uh, we're going to be over the next uh, several months expositing uh, verses 1 through 17. So basically this whole series is just going to be a, an exposition, uh, verse by verse, line by line, word for word, uh, uh, explanation and application of, of Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 17. Well, every time we watch a movie as a family, uh, during the opening scene, I always ask our 15-year-old son, Jacob, if he's scared. I'm like, Jacob, dude, are you, are you scared? Um, I've been doing that for the last 12 years or so, every time I watch a movie, uh, because um, <clears throat> when uh, we, he was a little guy, we took him to, to go see Finding Nemo, and uh, we found out how emotionally involved that he would get into movies. It's kind of like his mama. We'll be in a movie, and I look over, and Kelly's like, into it. I'm like, honey, like, I want to just go, boo, you know, so she just jumps or something, but it's like totally engaged in what's happening on the screen. And, uh, and so during the scene, if you remember Finding Nemo, where uh, some scary looking sharks have, have uh, Nemo and his friend Dory cornered, I, I noticed Jacob out of the corner of my eye starting, starting to fidget in his, in his little chair there. And, and so I leaned over to make sure he was okay. And I'll never forget, he said, dad, he said, this movie's boring. <laughs> I don't want to watch it anymore. Well, he didn't want to admit that he was scared, right? So he said it was boring. And so it was obvious that he wanted to get up and go. And so I, I got up and I took him out in the lobby and I just kind of wandered around after he wandered around through the arcade for the next uh, rest of the movie. And I, I followed him around. But because I'm such a kind, gracious, generous dad, I'm never going to let him live it down. Uh, that, that he thought the movie was boring. So every time we, we see a movie, I'm like, Jake, you scared, dude? You all right? You all right? Um, Apparently, I was a lot like Jacob when I was little. Movies were totally realistic to me as well. Uh, my mom and dad will tell you the story. My first, I think it was my first ever movie, and uh, they decided to take me uh, and my sister to the drive-in theater uh, to see 101 Dalmatians. I'm dating myself. It was probably like coming out for the first time, you know, 101 Dalmatians. And so they dressed us up in our pajamas, got us in the back of the car. We went into the drive, drive-in, you know, we got the, the Coke and the popcorn and all this stuff. And so we're just kind of sitting in the back seat. And this was kind of fun. You had the thing hooking on your window, you know. And uh, so here we are watching 101 Dalmatians. Well, I had never been to a movie before. And so in my mind, this was real. And uh, as my parents tell the story, I was hysterical out of my mind, crazy, thinking that Cruella DeVille was real and, and she was going to catch those puppies and kill them. And, and, and I was in the backseat just crying hysterically, just sobbing and, 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 and to the point where I just worked myself up in such a uh, tizzy that I actually threw up all over the backseat. Popcorn and Coke everywhere, you know. And <laughs> you can just imagine my dad in that situation. You know, what would my dad be thinking and doing? Maybe you can ask him for the details afterwards. But uh, I think how it went is we left, okay? We didn't even, I don't even know what happened, okay? Uh, we just left. My dad was like, we're out of here, okay? And so... Um, uh, I was uh, taking things a little too seriously, apparently, um, 
when it came to that. Well, what, the scariest movie that I ever remember seeing when I was growing up was The Wizard of Oz. I know we've all seen that, Wizard of Oz. Um, it came out every, every year on TV, and so I, I would snuggle up on the couch with my, with my mom in my pajamas and popcorn, and I, I was, I'd watch it with like one eye open, because uh, what, what scared me the most was the Wicked Witch of the West. I mean, she was a creepy lady, but what was worse was the freaky-looking little monkeys that would fly around, and I mean, those things gave me nightmares as a little kid, but, but what scared me the most was the, the wizard. That, that, I mean, that was meant to be kind of a scary scene there, right? The Dorothy and her little her friends, the scarecrow, the tin man, the lion, they go, they go into uh, his presence and they're terrified by what they see and by what they hear. There's this ominous looking head enveloped in smoke and fire and, you know, booming out demands and threats. And he tells them if they want his help, he has to go kill, they have to go kill the wicked witch and, and uh, bring back her broom. And so they do, and they come back, and once again, they cower in fear before the mighty wizard, and then Toto saves the day, right? Goes over to the corner, pulls back the curtain, and, and to reveal this bumbling, kind-hearted old man pushing a bunch of buttons and talking into this distorted microphone, and um, at first he tries to cover it up, right? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But it's too late because his true identity has been exposed and he realizes that his charade is over and he confesses that he really isn't a wizard at all. And naturally, Dorothy and her friends are greatly relieved when they realize the Wizard of Oz is a normal person just like them and they had nothing to fear. All that to say, that's not the case when it comes to the God of Sinai. Moses And the people of Israel trembled with fear when God descended on Mount Sinai with smoke and and fire and boomed out the Ten Commandments. This was no charade. God is the furthest thing from a nice old man trying to project an ominous image of himself using a bunch of Hollywood-style special effects. He's the God of the universe who, as we sang about tonight, is holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is nothing like us. He's completely set apart from us. He's completely other than us. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to peel back the curtain, if you will, uh, on the Ten Commandments and see the God who stands behind them. And what we're going to see and what we're going to hear should motivate all of us to obey these commands. We said last week that, that the Ten Commandments really give us a glimpse into the heart of God. This is, these, these represent God's heart. They, they, they show us what kind of God He is. Each, each commandment, as we'll learn over the next few months, tells us something about God. And together, they really are a concise yet, yet comprehensive reflection of His character and an expression of His will. And the main reason that God gave them to his people is so that we would know who he is and what he wants from us. And I think the key to understanding the the Ten Commandments is understanding the God behind them. And so we, we come here to the very beginning of the Ten Commandments passage, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You could call that the introduction to the Ten Commandments. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, 
it was customary for a king to make a covenant with his, with his vassals, with his people. It was called a, a, a suzerain treaty, or, or basically talking about someone who's sovereign over you. They make a treaty with you, and so a king would present to his people a, a treaty to sign, uh, and, and it would always would begin with a prologue or a preamble introducing himself to his people. And a typical preamble of, of a suzerain treaty would include three things. Number one, the king would identify himself. Number two, he would recount his past relationship with the people. And then thirdly, he would present the stipulations or the implications or the obligations of the treaty. And so in the preamble, the king laid out in, in simple terms, this is, this is who I am, this is what I've done, and now this is who you should be and what you should do as a result. In other words, the king in a suzerain treaty was defending his right to tell the people what to do. And here in, in, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, um, really uh, the, 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 the text here follows the, the pattern of the preamble of an ancient suzerain treaty. God is identifying himself here to the people of Israel. He, he's recounting his past relationship with them. And then he's going to go on in verses 3 through 17 to explain to them the stipulations or the obligations of their relationship. And so in essence, what God is doing here in verses 1 and 2 is he's defending his right to tell his people how he wanted them to live. And so he reminded them of who he is, what he had done for them, and why they should obey the laws that he was about to lay down for them. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but uh, you may have never actually asked yourself this question, but I think it's a fair question, and that is this. What authority does God have to tell you what to do with your life? What authority does God have to tell you what to do? Why should you listen to anything that God says? Why? Why should you follow and obey, as we're calling it, God's laws for life? Why? Well, we have here in these first two verses really two reasons why we need to know and obey the Ten Commandments. Two reasons why we need to know and obey the Ten Commandments. First of all, the first reason is God's severity. God's severity, we could simply say that He is grave. He's serious. Um, notice the first word there in, in verse 1. Then God spoke all these words saying, well, then what? Apparently there was something that had just happened and after that, then he said this, he spoke these words, he gave them the Ten Commandments. Well, then really is, uh, I think, a summary of chapter 19. Everything that's happened in, in, in chapter 19 is really setting the scene for the most monumental moment in the history of Israel. When you think about the Old Testament, the, the giving of the law here in Exodus chapter 20 is the highlight of the Old Testament, in the same way that, that in the New Testament, the highlight of the New Testament is the coming of Jesus Christ. And so the giving of the law in the Old Testament is the equivalent of the coming of Christ in the New Testament. So let's go back to verse, uh, chapter 19 and see uh, the events that led up to God giving the Ten Commandments. Notice it says in verse, uh, verses 1 and 2, 
This is chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out to the, of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And so it was just 12 short weeks since the Israelites had been rescued from the crazed, hard-hearted Pharaoh. And up until this point, the Israelites had seen God's handiwork on display. They had, they had been eyewitnesses of his mighty miracles. Uh, but now God wanted to formally introduce himself to them. And so he led them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And notice it says, and there Israel camp in front of the mountain. Uh, this, is, this, is Mo, this is Moses' old stomping grounds. That, that mountain is Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, as we know it, uh, this was the sacred spot where God had already introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3, we see this account of the burning bush. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro and his father-in-law, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And of course, you know the story of the the bush. He noticed the bush not burning. He went over closer to to observe it. He said, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is is holy ground. And uh, uh, he he introduced himself. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters for I'm aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, Moses had successfully completed his first assignment, which was bringing the people out of Egypt to this holy mountain. And now he was about to carry out his second assignment by bringing God's law to the people. He brought the people to God, and now he's going to bring God to the people. This is one camping trip the Israelites would never forget. Notice verse 3, Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Of Israel. So I think the first thing we need to make the connection uh, between this is the same place where God introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush. Now he's back with the entire nation introducing them to the God that he had met uh, before. But notice he tells Moses here to remind them of the plagues that, that he had inflicted on the Egyptians and how he preserved and protected the Israelites like a mother eagle does her baby chicks. And this phrase here on, on eagle's wings is a, is a beautiful uh, 
picture, it's beautiful imagery that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's special care of the nation of Israel. I love what Moses said in his song, this, the last song he sang before he went, went to be with the Lord in heaven, Deuteronomy 32, 11, he says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them, he carried them in his pinions. It's a beautiful imagery of of God acting like this mother eagle tenderly caring for her her young. God then promised Moses and the people that if they obeyed what he was about to tell them and were faithful to keep the covenant that he was about to make with them, that he would set them apart from all the other nations of the world in three unique ways. Notice what it says in the text. Number one, he would make them his own personal possession. Uh, They would be his people, a people for his own possession. Um, They would be a special treasure to him. Secondly, they would be a kingdom of priests. In other words, they would be missionaries. They would be ambassadors uh, to, to the rest of the nations on the planet. And then thirdly, they would be a holy nation. They would be distinct. They would be different. They would be set apart. I think it's interesting that in, in 1 Peter... Peter applies these, these same terms, these same uh, promises, if you will, uh, to us as believers. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Now, that does not mean that the church is the new Israel, that we've replaced Israel and there's no longer any future for Israel. It's simply saying that there's a lot of continuity, there's a lot of commonality between God's people in the Old Testament and God's people in the New Testament. And in many ways, God likens us and looks at us in, 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 as his people in the same way he did uh, with the nation of Israel. Notice verse 7 here. Working through chapter 19, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And so you see how Moses is acting as a mediator between God and the people, the people and God. But notice how the Israelites were so quick to commit to this covenant even though they didn't know what they were committing to. They enthusiastically agreed to, to, to covenant with God before ever hearing the contents of the covenant. They had no idea what he was about to, to tell them in chapter 20. I imagine we would have done the same thing if we saw and heard the things that the Israelites did at the foot of Mount Sinai. We'd be like, okay, whatever he says, we're doing. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses said to the, said, told, the words, uh, told the words of the people to the Lord. Verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. 
No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So God told the people to prepare themselves for the revelation of the law by washing their clothes abstaining from sexual intercourse, which would, they, they were about to learn in Leviticus that that, that made a person ceremonially unclean. But, but what's the point here? What, what is the, the emphasis here uh, in these instructions that, that the Lord gave to Moses about preparing themselves? I think it's, it's twofold. Number one, we see the purity of God's presence, that before you come into the presence of God, uh, you better be pure. You better be holy. You better be clean. You better have, have, have prepared yourself. Uh, this come-as-you-are mentality, I appreciate the, the sentiment of that is, hey, listen, don't, don't think that you've got to clean up your life before you come to Jesus. Uh, don't, don't feel like uh, you've got to get your act together before you can come to church. Come as you are. God accepts you as you are. But on the other side of the coin, right, is don't just waltz into the presence of God and say, well, you said to come as you are. No, you better come prepared because you are coming into the presence of the living God. So there's the purity of God's presence here, but also, secondly, it's the priority of God's word. They, they were to direct all their energy, all their attention to the hearing of the word of God. They shouldn't let anything else distract them. I think that's inherent in when he says and, and to, not, to not go near a woman. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.35 talks about, Paul talked about securing undistracted devotion to the Lord. And I think that's the point here. Is, is, is God saying, hey guys, you need to get focused and you need to get ready to listen uh, because there's nothing more important on this planet but what I'm about to tell you. God also told them to set up some no trespassing signs, uh, a kind of a zone all around the mountain to keep people from, from, from trying to catch a glimpse of, of God when he came down. Remember that uh, Moses later on said, hey, God, I'd really love to see your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, okay. And so <laughs> here's Moses in the, up on the mountain, and here, here comes God. And he says, hey, you need to get in that little crack in the, thing, in the, in the, in the rocks, and I'm going to walk by. I'm going to put my hand over the, 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 the crack in the rock so you can't see me, because if you're going to see me, you're going to die. And uh, he, he went by, and he, all he was able to see is God's backside, and that was more of a description of his attributes but uh, he, he warned here, God warned that if anyone got too close to the mountain, they were to be stoned or shot, shot to death. Um, and no one was allowed to even touch someone who touched the mountain, or they would die also. I mean, talk about a chain reaction, right? You, somebody will go over here to touch the mountain, you go touch that guy, you both dead, and it's like domino, ching, 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 ching. don't even touch the guy. Reminds me of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6 when the ark was being brought back to, to Jerusalem and it, and it began to wobble. And what did he do? He stuck his hand out to steady the ark and what happened to him? He, he got struck dead. You're like, God, what's up with that? The guy was helping out your ark. And God's like, I don't need any help with my ark. He, he, didn't, he didn't keep me as holy. He didn't revere. That was, that was an act of irreverence. And so again, the whole purpose of, of setting boundaries here was to help the people realize that God demands and deserves the utmost reverence and respect. 
We're talking about God's severity here. Why, why would we obey these commands? Why should we know these commands? Why should we? Because of his severity, that he's very grave, he's very serious. This was an unprecedented occasion. No other nation had ever personally met their God and had him speak to them or had him speak to them directly like God was about to do. They, they had to be ready, but, but no amount of preparation could have prepared them for what they were about to experience. Notice verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning and there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us saying, set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now I know this is just ink on a piece of paper, but can you begin to even imagine what an awesome experience that must have been for Moses and the Israelites? I mean, everything that happened in conjunction with the giving of the Ten Commandments, he's about to give them the Ten Commandments in this next chapter, everything surrounding the giving of the Ten Commandments was designed to portray God's awesome majesty and his glory and to create this very serious, sobering atmosphere for the presentation of the Ten Commandments. It's like, dun, dun, dun. There's fire, there's smoke, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's, there's, there, there's earthquakes, there's trumpeting, there's no trespassing, there's the death penalty. I mean, this was a serious situation. And this must have been absolutely terrifying for the Israelites. I mean, they literally feared for their lives. Notice in chapter 20, verse 18, when this whole thing was over. Notice what it says. This is chapter 20, verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Why? Notice what he goes on to say. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not, what? Sin. God's whole point here was to make them fearful of what? Sinning. Not fearful of him as much as it was a fearful of sin. 
he, he wanted to make them fearful of sinning. They, they were to conclude that if this is how scary God is when he's giving the commandments, then how much scarier will he be when he comes to judge you for breaking them? I mean, he's just given them to us. We haven't even done anything wrong yet. <laughs> What's going to happen if we do something wrong? And A.W. Pink says it this way. He says, the fearful manifestation in which Jehovah appeared to deliver the law was designed to affect the people of Israel with an awe for his authority and to signify that if God were so terrible in the giving of the law, when he comes to judge us for its violation, how much more so will he be? Spurgeon, interesting, Spurgeon said that this dreadful scene that we just read at Mount Sinai was a prophecy, if not a rehearsal, of the Day of Judgment. If you ever wonder what the Judgment Day is going to be like, well, we kind of got a little prelude to that here. Uh, God giving the law, uh, laying out the commandments, if you will, and what's it going to be like when he judges us based on how we did keeping his laws. Uh, probably a very similar scene. In fact, turn over to Hebrews chapter 10 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look here at a couple times uh, tonight. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Again, why did God present himself the way he did? He wanted to make the people fearful of sinning, right? Notice Hebrews 10.26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think we will, he will deserve who is trampled underfoot Who? The Son of God, we're not just talking about the law. We're not just talking about the Ten Commandments now. Trampling underfoot the Ten Commandments. Ah, oh, Ten Commandments, who cares? Forget about those. How about trampling underfoot the Son of God? Blowing off Jesus Christ and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant, his sacrificial death by which, he was, by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. Well, all that is maybe just a little bit of what is wrapped up in that word, then. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, then. That's an important word. We really can't understand the gravity of what he's about to say if we don't get that context. Um. And if that wasn't terrifying enough for the Israelites, then God actually spoke. Notice it says, then God spoke all these words. God himself audibly communicated the Ten Commandments to Moses. But listen, I don't know if you've thought about this before. Moses wasn't the only one who heard God speak. The entire nation heard God's voice echo forth from the top of Mount Sinai. We know that from verses like Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 33. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 33. It says this, Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Chapter 5, verse 22. 
These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick gloom, which a great voice with a great voice, and he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And when you heard the voice, again, when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and elders. You said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We've seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says and speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you and we will hear and do it. In other words, Moses, (laughs) this is freaking us out, man, okay? We cannot handle hearing God, okay? So you go talk to him and then come tell us what he says. Um, They were looking for a mediator, and, and as you know, um, uh, again, we can look at different um, passages throughout uh, the book of Exodus, but for the sake of time, we won't. But uh, you know that Moses, uh, it says that God engraved the Ten Commandments on these two tablets of stone, and, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, David heard, or excuse me, David, Moses heard uh, some noise down in the camp, and uh, you remember what happened down there, right? The people were getting anxious. They were like, hey, Moses has been gone a little while. Maybe, 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 uh, maybe he's not coming back. And maybe this whole thing's just a charade. And, and uh, you know, we need a God that we can worship. And so Aaron, hey, give us a God. Here's some gold and let's, let's build this, let's, let's uh, make fashion this golden calf. And so here comes Moses down the mountain and he sees the people in this, in this full-on uh, idolatrous orgy. And what does he do with the Ten Commandments? Psh, smashes them on the ground. Um, and after they repent and he deals with all that sin, uh, he goes back up the mountain and God engraved a second set of commandments and eventually uh, he tells him to place them where? You remember where the Ten Commandments went? In the Ark of the Covenant alongside the bowl of manna. There was a bowl of manna in there and also the rod that he used to perform miracles in Egypt. You can see that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, the contents of... Of, of the ark, and you just thought it was something freaky like um, at uh, Indiana Jones, right? That stuff kind of comes out, and, but that, there, was, there was actually things in the ark. The point is this, that the Ten Commandments are the only part of the law that was written in stone by God's own hand. Moses copied down the rest. Exodus chapter 34 uh, makes this clear. Exodus chapter 34, verses 27 and 28 Exodus 34, verse 27, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat or drink water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And so the Ten Commandments uh, were the only thing that was actually engraved in stone, written by God's own hand, and, and uh, then they also are the only part of the law preserved in the ark, was the Ten Commandments. 
So what's the point? What can, we, what can we draw from that? Well, I think simply this, that they reflect, the Ten Commandments reflect God's eternal, unchanging nature and will. All that other stuff about the temple and the robes and the, and the food and don't eat, don't eat uh, pulled pork sandwiches and fried shrimp and all that other stuff, right? That wasn't in the Ark of the Covenant, right? What was in there? It was the Ten Commandments, God's eternal, unchanging, permanent law that reflects God's eternal, unchanging nature and will. Listen, God's character will never change and neither do his standards. So it's no wonder that all the Ten Commandments, as we mentioned this last week, are either repeated or refined or reinforced in the New Testament. Again, these are not some ancient ideals to live your life by. These aren't good suggestions or opinions. These are timeless truths which are universally applicable. And again, notice, we're looking at the reason why we should obey these things. It says, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Don't miss the I am. I am, which was the name that God gave to Moses when Moses said, hey, okay, I'm going to go to Israel, or I'm going to go to Egypt and uh, the people might ask, well, who, who sent you again? And, and Pharaoh's going to want to know who sent me, and who do I tell him? And he said, what? I am. Tell him I am sent you, which was uh, a reflection of God's eternality, that he's always been, he's always existed, he always will exist. Uh, this is his eternality, his immutability, his sovereignty. And so he says, I am the Lord your God. And so the first reason that we need to know and obey the Ten Commandments is because of who He is. He is the Lord our God. He is grave. We, we need to be motivated to know His commands and obey His commands because of His severity. He is the real deal. He's not someone to mess with. But that's only one reason. There's a second reason here. And I love just the balance in the Word of God and really the balance in the character of God because the second reason why we should know and obey the commands is because of God's sympathy. So you've got God's severity on one hand, that He's grave, but then secondly, you've got His sympathy and that He's gracious. So God is severe, but He's also sympathetic. God is grave, but He's also gracious. And notice what he says next. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That little line there is, is really a summary of everything that had already happened during the Exodus up to that point. He just says it very simply. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and everything I did to get you out of there. And everything I've done to get you to this point where you're standing at the foot of this mountain. That phrase, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, that, that appears again and again and again in the Old Testament some 125 times. I think it's just God's favorite way of summarizing his gracious dealings with the nation of Israel. Turn, back to Deut- or turn ahead to Deuteronomy 7. Uh, love this. This is God's election of the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 He says this, for you are a holy 
people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now we're in verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Listen carefully now. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I'm commanding you today to do them. So we have a couple of things going on here. One is obviously God's electing love for the nation of Israel in his good pleasure. He sovereignly chose to set his love on this group of people, on this nation and graciously and mercifully deliver them from slavery in in Egypt. It was undeserved deliverance. I mean, if God hadn't taken the initiative to save Israel, they would have never left Egypt. In fact, even after he delivered them from Egypt, where did they want to keep going? Back to Egypt. And they were whining and complaining and and, and wanting to go back. And and God was reminding the people of his goodness, his graciousness, and redeeming them, which should have motivated to do what? What should that have motivated them to do? To obey and to serve him, not out of obligation, but out of what? Gratitude and love. And so we need to understand, don't miss this, that God's law, we haven't even got there yet. It's in the next verse, verse 3 through 17. God's law is set in the context of God's grace. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so, again, I know I've been saying a lot of stuff tonight, but key in here right now, because this is a really important section here that we need to make sure we don't misunderstand the role of the Ten Commandments. But just look at the, the timeline here. It's, I think it's so revealing, it's so insightful. God presented the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel after they'd been saved. You see that? They've already been delivered. They've been rescued from uh, the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So he presented the Ten Commandments to the nation after they had been saved. In other words, he didn't take them out of Egypt because they had kept the Ten Commandments. Hey, you, kept, you did a good job, so I'm going to rescue you now. They, they were to keep the Ten Commandments because he had taken them out of Egypt. And again, I mentioned this last week. God doesn't give us, didn't give us the Ten Commandments so that we could try to keep them so that we could earn our way to heaven. No, he gave us the Ten Commandments, the fact that he's delivered us, he's rescued us from our sin, and then he points us back to the law and says, hey, this is, this is what, how you should live your life. The law sends us to Christ so we can be saved, and then Christ sends us back to the law so that we can be sanctified. I think that's a very key theological thought. So if you're thinking, hey, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments and I'm doing pretty good at those Ten Commandments and I hopefully got my fingers crossed, I've, I keep most of them, I'm going to get there. Well, no, you're, you're totally getting the, the order, you're getting it all out of order. 
God gave these things after they were delivered, after they were saved, after they were rescued. So you shouldn't be thinking about the Ten Commandments until after you get saved. One commentator said this, the Israelites are not to keep the law in order for God to save them. They've already been saved. God has brought them out of Egypt. The law he now gives is the subsequent stage in Israel's developing relationship with God. It's what's expected of people already redeemed. He says they're given to redeem people in order that they may more fully bear the image of God as they live among the nations of the world. Now think with me about this. I had to really think about this when I wrote this down. Is this really true? But I think it is. That the Ten Commandments weren't given generally to all people, but specifically to who? To God's people. I mean, is he talking to all the nations of the world here? No, he's, he's, he's doing a treaty deal. Not with all the nations of the world. He's doing a treaty with his people. And guess what? Who are we? We're God's people. And as such, we are to reflect his nature and his character in the way that we live our lives. And how do we do that? Well, there's no easier way to reflect God's character and his nature in this lost and dying world is keep the Ten Commandments. Because it reflects that we are his people and it will set you apart from everybody else in the world. Just by trying to keep these ten basic laws for life, man, you will stick out a sore, like a sore thumb in your home, in your neighborhood, at work, at school. And when our lives are set apart or different from everyone else, it makes people want to know, hey, why are you different? Something different about you. And, and guess what? We get to tell them. We get to tell them why we're different. It, it's God. And, and, and hopefully they'll be drawn to God through our reflection of him in this world. And so the way that you and I can make the greatest impact on our country, for example, is not by imposing the Ten Commandments on everyone else, but by living them out in our own lives. The reason why I say that is because, you know, in recent years, uh, man, the Ten Commandments have been like headline news, right? It's like, oh, they're going to take the Ten Commandments down out of the schools. They're going to take Ten Commandments out of the courtrooms. And, and so there's been a lot of Christians fighting to, to keep the Ten Commandments posted in schools and, and, and courthouses. And, and, and hey, I, I appreciate the effort, right? But imagine what would happen if Christians expended the same amount of time, energy, and passion in simply keeping the Ten Commandments themselves, what are you more passionate about, keeping the Ten Commandments in the courtrooms and the classrooms or keeping them? What are you more passionate about? I think more Christians need to be passionate about keeping them, period, and not thinking that just because we have them posted in the, some secular school or some secular courthouse that that's somehow going to you know, change the world. Um, I'm, I'm not opposed to that. Hey, let's keep them up there. But let's not lose focus of what, what the big impact is going to be is, is, is not that we won some political battle to keep some poster hanging on a wall somewhere, but that we're living these things out in front of our neighbors, in front of our family, in front of our friends and co-workers and classmates. Again, two extremes here real quick to avoid when understanding and applying the Ten Commandments. Okay, these are the two ends of the spectrum. There's what's called legalism. And then over here is what's called antinomianism, anti-law. So you've got legalists who think, hey, I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments so I can be saved. 
And so they think that they, they keep these rules and these regulations, and, and, and if they, 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 they keep them, they'll be saved. Uh, on the other hand, it's like, you know what? Those people are wrong. You can't work your way to heaven. The law has nothing to do with our salvation. And so therefore, the antinomian's view is, hey, I, the law has no effect on my life, has no impact, has no obligation whatsoever in my life. It has no place in my life. I, I'm free to live any way I want uh, because I'm saved no matter what. And whether or not I keep the Ten Commandments or not, it's all under the blood. And so forget about the law. You need to avoid those two extremes, right? Why? Because God freed us from bondage to sin, not so we could be free to do whatever we wanted to do, but so we could become bond slaves of Christ. So important that you didn't get saved. God didn't deliver you from bondage so you could just go off and do whatever you want to do. No, he delivered you from one bondage, right, to another bondage. You went from bondage to sin and and, and Satan to to bondage to Christ. 1 Peter 2.16, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Galatians 5.13, for you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In fact, listen to this. I, I think this is so helpful. I think that God gave us these laws to keep us from falling back into bondage to sin. He doesn't want us to go back to Egypt. He freed us so we could remain free. In fact, James refers to the law, uh, the Ten Commandments, if you will, as the law of, remember, liberty. James 1.25, the law of liberty. That's an interesting phrase because most people think that freedom comes from being free from laws, being free from rules, being free from regulations, when, when in reality, true freedom comes through living by a set of rules. Why? Because rather than restricting freedom, rules provide freedom. They give you boundaries. Now listen, if, if you're playing, if you're playing um, basketball or, or football, you, you need to play by the rules. And if you play by the rules, it's fun and no one gets hurt. You, you stop playing by the rules, it, it just gets ugly out there. It's what they call jungle ball, right? Basketball turns into a jungle ball and people are getting hacked and hurt all over the place. Tempers are flaring. It's no fun anymore. How about driving? If you drive according to the laws, driving is safe. No one gets hurt. But if you start breaking the laws, people are going to start getting hurt. People are going to start dying. If you, again, if you live by the rules or the laws, life is safe. It's fun. No one gets hurt. Listen to what Moses said to the, to, the, to the second generation who was going into the promised land, their parents had all died off in the wilderness, and he's reminding them, Deuteronomy means second law, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord your God commanded you? What are these Ten Commandments all about? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us up from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our forefathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival. In other words, the Ten Commandments 
were given to us for our own what? Good. They're for our own good. And listen, listen if you're a parent, you get this, okay? Because we give our kids rules all the time. Because we love them and we want to protect them and they are for their own good. We're not being mean. We're not being an ogre, a killjoy, want to take away our kids' fun. No, it's the exact opposite. We want them to have the most fun. And in, in, in the same way, God's not trying to, to spoil our fun by giving us these restrictions or these laws, but he's graciously wanting to maximize our joy and happiness in life. I mean, your kid might think it's fun to play in the road, and you come out and say, hey, don't play in the road. I told you, don't go in the road. And they're like, oh, dad, oh, mom, as if we're, right? No, well, the point is, it could kill them. It could, it could royally mess up their life. And, and practically speaking, our kids' lives depend on doing what we say. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, their lives depend on what we say. And in a very real sense, our lives depend on keeping the Ten Commandments. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 46. Take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not idle word. It's not an idle word for you. I'm not just blowing off steam. I'm not just, you know, wasting words here. Indeed, it is your life. It's your life. Your whole life revolves around keeping the law, keeping these rules, these laws for life. And again, so the reason, the, 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 the reason why we need to know and obey the Ten Commandments is because of what God has done. And not just because of who He is, that He's severe, He's grave, but because of what He's done. He is gracious, and we should be motivated by His sympathy, by His mercy. Another movie that we've enjoyed watching as a family in recent years is the, the remake, or I guess the the, the uh, movie version of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I know you've, probably a lot of you have seen that, read the book. has a lot of similarities to The Wizard of Oz. Um, four children step through a wardrobe into the land of Narnia, a mysterious kingdom of men and women and talking beasts, and they soon discover that the kingdom has been taken over by a what? A witch, <laughs> the white witch, who's cast her icy spell over the land, making it winter all the time, but never Christmas. How brilliant is that? It's always winter, never Christmas. What a great picture of the gospel. All the inhabitants of Narnia live in anticipation of the return of the real ruler, who is this great lion named Aslan. And one, way, one day the children hear the news circulating that Aslan's on the move. And so naturally, they're fearful at the thought of meeting a lion, and so they nervously ask one of the other creatures. They said, well, is he safe? And the other creature replies, safe? Of course he's in safe, but he's good. Not safe, but good. And I think in that brief description of King Aslan, Lewis simply and profoundly captures the essence of the king of the universe. God is by no means safe. None of us would dare approach such a holy, awesome God and expect to survive if it wasn't for his goodness. 
And it wasn't for his grace. A.W. Tozer said this, in the knowledge of the holy, the greatness of God rouses fear within us, but his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. To fear and not be afraid, that is the paradox of faith. To fear and to not be afraid, that is the paradox of faith. We fear God, but we're not afraid of him because his scariness is balanced out by his goodness and his graciousness. Real quick, just look back to our text, Exodus chapter 20. And after this whole thing goes down, in verses 18 through 27, 26, something amazing happens. We've already mentioned here, read up to verse 21. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me. You shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones for if you wield your tool on it you will profane it and you shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it you say that's weird (laughs) what is he talking about you know what that is right there that's an expression of God's goodness and grace because first of all we already looked at this after giving the ten commandments God graciously provided them a mediator, who was that? Moses, and also a means to approach him, and that was what? What is it? What is 20, verses 22 to 26 a reference to? How about the sacrificial system? Hey, I'm going to tell you how to approach me. You're going to build an altar. You're going to sacrifice things on it, right? Both of these things, the, the mediator in Moses and, and, and the, the sacrificial system in the altar that he was talking about them building, both of these look forward to who? Jesus Christ, who would be the ultimate mediator between God and man by shedding his own blood on the cross. And Christ, as we know, once and for all, sacrificed himself, which provided a way for lawbreakers like you and like me to boldly approach God without fear. And beloved, listen, everything in the Old Testament relating to God communicates keep your distance. I mean, everything in the Old Testament is keep your distance. This is, a, this is a severe, grave God, whereas everything in the New Testament communicates draw near with what? Confidence. Draw near with confidence. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has changed everything and how we relate to God. If I could, let me just read one more passage because this really brings it all together. This is beautiful. It's powerful. Hebrews 12, verse 18. Contrasting here, contrasting Mount Sinai. That's our picture, right? Mount Sinai. Contrasting Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire 
and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sounds of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. What is he describing there? Exodus chapter 19, the giving of the Ten Commandments. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for of those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. In other words, give your life as a living sacrifice, not out of fear, out of what? Gratitude. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and and even this Old Testament passage which some Christians today have just kind of ruled out as having any application uh, for for our lives, and yet uh, it's so indicative of the gospel, and we see uh, Christ in this, we see grace in this, we see mercy in this, and uh, Lord, we just thank you for uh, granting us a greater understanding tonight by your spirit. I pray that we would all be passionate about knowing the commands and obeying the commands because of who you are and because of what you've done, and may our motivation not be fear, but love and gratitude, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.